thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're continuing our study of the book of Genesis. We're now in chapter 46. And uh, once we're done with this, with the book of Genesis, we'll take a break. And when we come back after uh, Labor Day in September, we'll uh, take on the uh, book of Exodus. So I'm just going to go through the whole Pentateuch and cover all that. And then we'll see what we'll do after. So please turn to your Bible, to chapter 46. And again, by way of summary, we now know that Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. They have come to know who he is, and he sees all that has happened to him as the action of God in his own life. He sees his own sufferings and his own defeats, as well as his own glory, as God's plan. And that is, this plan is greater than his own life, and that through him, God is touching the lives of many. The book of Genesis, as the rest of, the, of Scripture, has been written for us. It is the intent of the Holy Spirit to guide us to all truth through Scripture. As we meditate on Scripture, Scripture shows us God's plan for us specifically today. What God has intended to do with our own lives. And therefore... I'm hoping that through the study of the book of Genesis, if there, is, if there are going to be two things you will remember or keep in mind, they'll be these. Number one, your life is not what it seems. Do not ever judge the worthiness of your life by human standards. Because by human standards, every life is a failure. No life is a success, not even that of Jesus. And the second you cannot possibly understand the importance of your life. You are a mystery to yourself, and you will remain so until heaven. There is no way that you can comprehend why you're here. Fully, I mean, completely. You will get to understand a purpose, a reason, yes. You will gain knowledge and wisdom, from meditating on Scripture, from asking God's inspiration. Yes. Just as a child who is two years old cannot possibly understand the impact he or she is having on the family, the love, the joy, the secret teaching that the parents are receiving from the child, so, in likewise manner, 
There is no way that you can today comprehend the impact of your life down the generations. You can't. Because your life doesn't end here. It merely begins. And you can't right now comprehend what you will be doing in heaven. Keep these two things in mind because this is one of the fundamental reasons why I love this book, the book of Genesis, so much. It is showing us that these people who lived so far away from us a long, long time, you can almost say on a distant planet, because their lives are so different from ours, impact our lives today in fundamental ways. Do you realize that we are closer to to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph than we are to our own neighbors? And if you notice, they lived, for the most part, very ordinary lives. Yes, there were moments of extraordinary encounter with God in their lives. They were called. God spoke to them. God revealed things to them, yes. But by and large, their life was full of what? Discomfort and strife and difficulties and tragedies and losses. They were immigrant. They were in exile. They had very little control over their own lives. Just like us today. And God cared for them all the way through just as he cares for you today, right now, in your life, right where you are, with all the struggles and difficulties and questions and maybe disappointments and regrets and things you wanted to do and you couldn't. With all of that, God is with you. If you're going to remember anything from the book of Genesis, these are the two things. You will never fully understand who you are until you meet Jesus face to face and in his eyes you will understand who you are. Only when you see him, and you see him looking at you, will you understand who you are. And the second, you impact people more than you think. Don't judge yourself by human standards because you will always come short of your glory. So what I'm saying to you is not that you are not worth of becoming a star. Is that becoming a star according to human standards will be too little for you. You're selling yourself short. If you thought that the epitome, the epitome of glory is for you to become a star, like, you know, I don't know, Madonna or, or uh, Jackson or whatever the names are, right? You'd be selling yourself too short. God has far greater plans for you than that. Far greater. And that's what we have to remind ourselves constantly. So with that, chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will there make of you a great nation. I will go down with, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. And Jacob set out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their cattle and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, 
all his offspring he brought with him to, into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shol, the sons of Canaanite women, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Lob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jahlil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dina. Altogether his sons and his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haji, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beria, with Sarah their sister, and the sons of Beria, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jahzeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bila, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own offspring, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob that came into Egypt were seventy. He sent Judah before him to Joseph to appear him before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up to tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds, and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls, uh, calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of cattle from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So recall, the book of Genesis is also called the book of generations. By this we mean that it's a book where generations are listed. And here is the generation of Israel. You notice that it says 70 people total. Why 70 important? Why is that number important? For two reasons. Number one, in the symbols of scripture, 7 is the number of the covenant. 10 is the number of completion. 7 times 10 means the covenant applies to all. It's all of the nation that lives by the covenant of Israel. The second reason, 70 was the number of nations. All nations in the, in, a, in the book of Genesis. Therefore, by th that in number indicates also that Israel is now becoming a nation. And the other important point that we have to always remember is that God's intent has always been that all nations shall come to him through Israel.
And if you recall through the whole genealogy of the book of Genesis, the key element has been what? Who is the key character, key person in every, in every family? The firstborn. The firstborn. And what is Israel then in this whole genealogy? The firstborn of who? Of God. You're right, of Isaac, absolutely. But it is, he is the firstborn of God as we went through the whole genealogic line from Adam down to um, Set and then all the way down to Noah and then across into um, Shem and from Shem to Eber and from Eber down to Abraham and from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac, Jacob. This is the line of the firstborn. And what is the role of the firstborn? What is the firstborn supposed to do? Know God, yes, and lead his brothers to God. That is the role of the firstborn. That's what the firstborn is supposed to do. In the eyes of God, all nations are his children. And Israel was singled out to be the ones to lead them back to him, because Israel is the firstborn. Do you understand? So the whole notion of the chosen people, which was true during the Old Covenant, was true precisely because Israel as a nation was the firstborn nation. Hence, they were chosen as what? See, we say the chosen people and we think it's like a prize. But if you study Scripture, you see that having God as your God is no prize most of the time. So what are you... You're chosen, but there's something missing. You're chosen to exactly, to lead. There was a role you're supposed to fulfill. And indeed, it was fulfilled when? Through the coming of the firstborn Israelite named Jesus Christ. Right? At the well, he told the Samaritan woman, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know. And he said, for the salvation comes from the Jews. The Jews, the descendant of Judah, going all the way back to the prophecy that Jacob will make at the end of this book. Once the transfer happened, who became the firstborn? Who was the firstborn after Jesus? Peter. Yeah. Peter. So in a fundamental sense, who are we? What are we? We are Jews. Yeah, surprise. When the Christians became Christians, there was no intention on their end to say, oh, these are the Jews over there, and now we're different. They looked at themselves as what? Jews in continuity of the whole human drama starting from Adam. St. Luke affirms it because he goes back in his genealogy all the way to Adam. St. Matthew goes all the way up to Abraham. What are they telling us? This is your family. Remember, in the, in, the, in the ancient mentality, if you are adopted into a family, not only are you adopted, but your line of ancestry changes. In other words, if I'm adopting a kid, it's not just me adopting the kid. It's all my ancestors adopting the kid. So when you were adopted into the family of God and you were baptized, what did you become? Yeah, what does that mean, children of God? Israelites. The new, what is the Catholic Church? The new Israel. That's the title that is given to the church by the fathers. So again, I reiterate my point that I made a number of times, but I have to say it 
again and again because there are a number of you who do come from the Middle East and who have political issues with Israel as a state today. You have political issues with Israel, I'm not debating those. But you cannot hate the Jews. I don't care what your position is, if there is hatred of the Jew in your heart, I'm telling you right now, you're not going to make it to heaven. Because you know what? There's a whole bunch of Jews up there. No. We don't hate them, and then they don't, they, I don't make generalization. This is the thing we have to escape. There's none of that generalization. There's somebody we're going to celebrate, we're going to crown, by the way, and she's what? She's Jewish. She never said in any of her apparitions, I'm not Jewish anymore. Okay? So if you have a problem with her being a Jewish, you're going to have a big problem. You understand what I'm saying to you? So you've got to work on this. You ask the Holy Spirit to take away from your heart any hatred of the Jews. Whatsoever. Again, that has nothing to do with whether you accept the politics of Israel. It's another, king, it's another um, uh, country, and they, they may do certain things with which you agree, and they may do other things. No different from Africa or, uh, I don't know, the United States or Canada. Nothing to do with it. I'm talking about a hatred of the Jews. And the one who stroked the hatred of the Jews in your heart is the devil. He wants you to hate them. Because you're going to be in for a big surprise when you're standing in front of, the, of a Jewish boy talking to you. And who's your judge. Okay? So this is another really important element here that we have to absolutely understand. There is no space for hatred in a Christian heart. None. But particularly, no space of hatred for the Jews. Make sense? It doesn't matter whether they deny. Jesus was on the cross. And they were the ones, many of them, saying, crucify him. What did he say? That's a good point. There may be some influence that are outside of Christianity that have infiltrated Christianity in many ways. So we have to be very clear on this an understanding of where we stand as Christians. Very clear, very important. Yes? If, if in your heart you, you can, you're saying to yourself, I hate the Jews, or I hate the Muslims, or I hate the black, or the yellow, or the blue, or the purple, or whatever thing you want to attach to, okay, you're not going to make it into heaven. Just starting right there. It's a very basic statement. If you think you're going to be able to make it into heaven with something that starts by I hate, other than I hate sin, you're going to be a big surprise. You understand what I'm saying to you? Okay. Very basic teaching of Christianity. We cannot hate others. Because Jesus died for all of them. You can't tell Jesus, I love you, but I hate those people you died for. You just can't, can't, can't work this. You understand? Okay. It's something I can explain to a six-year-old and then understand that on the spot. Okay, so let that keep in mind. The second thing, and I hear that a number of times, the thought that the Jews were cursed. Okay, that's a heresy. It comes in two flavors. One, when he cursed the fig tree, it means he cursed. No, he did not curse the Jews. What he did was effectively state the truth about the situation of the temple back then. The temple was not producing fruits. And what he meant was that the temple was about to be destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. 
He was certainly not cursing the Jews because if he did, guess what? He'd be cursing his mother. Yeah? And the other flavor is when they condemned him, when they said to Pilate, crucify him and let his blood come upon us, someone interpreted that to mean, ah, you see, his blood came upon them, therefore they were cursed. And again, this is not the Catholic teaching. In fact, Jesus wanted them to say, let his blood come upon them. Why? Because when you receive the blood of Jesus on you, what happens to you? You're blessed. He loved them so much that he allowed them to say that so that he can actually what? Yes. And the third thing you need to remember is the teaching of St. Paul. What is the one sign amongst others that the end of the world is coming? The conversion of the Jews. And when I say conversion of the Jews, I do not mean the conversion of the Jews to non-denominational Christian. All right? I mean Catholic. That's what we mean. When they convert and they become what they were always meant to be, the new Israel, then you know the end is close. And since today there isn't any kind of that sign, I think you can rest assured for the time being that we're nowhere near the end of times, okay? All right, so very important point that I wanted to make, and I have absolutely no clue what I wanted to make that point, but I made it. Now, firstborn, yes, firstborn. All right, so we saw this genealogy of firstborns, and obviously it's important to us because through the descendants of Judah, especially Hezron, that's the lineage of Christ, right? You can see the lineage of Christ being drawn here. I'm not going to spend much time on this genealogy. I'm not going to go through the names. I'm going to talk about other things today in this chapter. The first thing I'd like to spend time on is the, uh, the first verse. So Israel took his, journey, took, this, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He made a detour to go to Beersheba. He had seen God. God had spoken to him at Beersheba. But instead of going straight down to Egypt, he went there. Why do you suppose he did that? Why did he want to offer sacrifice? Jacob was perplexed. His, his God has spoken to Isaac and told him, do not go to Egypt. Now it's his turn. And he's perplexed. God told my father not to go into Egypt. What am I supposed to do? So he goes there. And notice, he doesn't just pray. He could have stayed, stayed exactly where he was, right? And by the way, Jacob going to Beersheba is not like us getting in our Corolla and driving to church. All right? It's a huge undertaking. A lot of people that you have to move. It's no small affair for him to go there. But he does. He goes there. But it's not a church there, Right? It's not even a temple. He's not required to go there. There's no request that says, you will go to Beersheba. Why didn't he just stay where he is in his tent and said, okay, let me go pray to God. See what God wants from me. Why didn't he just do that? Wouldn't that be a lot easier on everybody? Well, is it like God is only in Beersheba? Beersheba has the monopoly where God is and he's not where Jacob is, right there in his tent? That's the first question. The second, he's not content in prayer only. What does he do? 
He offers sacrifice. He offers sacrifice. So, let's start with this commentary by St. John Chrysostom. On hearing this, let us learn in whatever we do, whether embarking on some project or beginning a journey, first of all, to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in prayer and by calling on His help to address the matter in hand, thus also imitating these good people's godliness. He offered a sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. The text says, For you to learn that Jacob followed in his father's footsteps, and thus demonstrated the reverence for divine things that Isaac had. Because he took the initiative in showing his own right attitude in thanksgiving, at once he felt the influence of grace from on high. I mean, because he had in view the length of the journey and kept in mind his advanced age, Jacob was afraid that death might come upon him before the meeting and rob him of the sight of his son, so he offered praise to God to grant him life enough to enable him to enjoy this final satisfaction. All right, a couple of things. Some people will tell you, I don't need to come to church, I can just pray where I am. Right? Others will say, I don't have to go to confession. I can ask God to forgive me and forgive me right now. And you know what? That's true. That's true. Whatever you are, if you pray to God from the bottom of your heart, God is going to hear you. Absolutely. Wherever you are, if you're asking for forgiveness, God is going to bestow forgiveness upon you. That's true. So then why should we go to church and why should we go to confession? All right, I'll put it to you this way. Because, you know, we always think about those things in terms of obligation, which fundamentally, fundamentally says something about our attitude towards heaven. We think of it as an obligation. Right? We're almost, we feel almost like we're obligated to go to heaven because, you know what, we have no other choice. And we miss the point. It's not about obligation. Praying by yourself and asking God to forgive you by yourself, on your own, would be like somebody who goes and gets a burger. Okay? Is there food? There? Sure, there is food. But God intends to give you more than a burger, no matter how good the burger is. God has reserved for you heavenly food. The food of heaven. And God said, if you want to eat the food that I reserve for you, you have to come and see me. Where I'm waiting for you. Now, would any one of you call your mom over the phone and say, Mom, um, I'm, I'm calling to, uh, to place an order. Okay, but what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you're sort of uh, six blocks away from your mother. I'm, I'm trying to call an order. Could you just prepare the food and ship it by FedEx? Would, would you do that? Would you do that to your mother? Why won't you? Ah, now we're starting to talk. You see, fundamentally, those who say, I can pray on my own, I can ask God... 
They're treating God like what? Equal. Like a buddy. Like a friend. Or like Santa Claus. We don't want to meet God on His terms. Why? Because we know better. Do you understand? So even if you're talking to people who are Catholic or otherwise and who don't want to come to the church, you need to realize what's underlying all of this before you engage in this boxing match to try to convince them that they should come to the church. You need to realize there is more to it than just their question. What they're really saying is, I don't know who God is. I don't trust Him enough. I don't think what He has to give me is that important for me to make the effort to go and see Him. They're saying a lot about their attitude towards God. Yeah? And most of the time, they will tell you they're going to pray where they live. I have not yet heard anybody say, and I will offer sacrifice. Sacrifice is where your prayer is. And there is, usually, if you're trying to obtain something, there is no effective prayer unless you're going to sacrifice something unless there is on your part a willingness to lose something. So, Jacob goes to where God met him. He doesn't set the conditions. God met him there. He goes back to where God met him. He shows respect. Hmm? And when he gets there, what does he do? He offered sacrifice. Notice, it doesn't say here, in verse 1, that he prayed. He offered sacrifice. To whom now? And that's really key. Who does he offer sacrifice to? Ah, this is huge for all of you fathers. That the God of his father, guess who your kids are going to sacrifice to? Your God. If you are a workaholic and you yourself do not take the time to sit with your children and pray, don't expect them to pray, especially your boys. Not going to happen. They're going to sacrifice at the altar of your God because they know who your God is. If you get really excited and animated watching a football game, which is fine, but you start yawning, as soon as the subject of religion comes up, don't expect your kids to be religious. They know who they're going to sacrifice to. The God of TV. Your kids are going to sacrifice at the altar of your God. So, who is your God? Your God is the one whom you, you, you what? Worship, yeah. Ah, sacrifice. Your God is the one to whom you sacrifice. That's who your God is. I still remember... My own father, God bless his soul, who caught me when I was 14 year old trying to smoke a cigarette. It was a disaster. So I didn't need anything to not smoke because that was enough. 
But anyway, he caught me. And he lectured me over not smoking. While smoking. He couldn't stop. He used to smoke three packs a day. He just could not. I stopped later. Do you think for one second I heard a word what he said? There was no way. And you know that. Don't tell your son, oh, you know, don't watch TV if you're sitting at 2 o'clock watching TV. Don't, you know all these things. I don't have to remind, remind you of them. But they are very important when it comes to your faith. Parents, does, do your kids hear you say, I'm going to confession? Do they hear you say that? Do they hear you say, let's pray the rosary? When you go to a restaurant, you sit down to eat, do you do the sign of the cross? Who are you sacrificing to? They'll know right away what is really important for you. Because it's a sacrifice. You're taking time from what you would like to do and do something that requires effort. Do you understand? Yeah, he sacrificed to the God of his father. That's who your kids are going to sacrifice to. So choose wisely. And no matter what you think, and no matter how you feel about things, they're going to catch on what you do. It's what you do that will determine who is your God. So if you're working on Sundays and you cannot work, don't work on Sundays. Because otherwise, you're telling your kids who your God is. And on and on the list goes. Examine your lives and really understand who you're sacrificing to. That's really important. Yes. Do young girls look at the mom? The mother has an immense role to play in a family. You hear me harp on the guys because in this day and age, we have a huge crisis of manhood and fatherhood. The guys just gave up. They're letting the women run the show. That's why you hear me harp so much about it. But the mothers have a huge role. Mothers are pillars of civilization. Mothers are what keep the whole thing running. And, 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 and wives. So their role is extremely important. But I'll tell you this. If in the family, the kids watch a woman, a mother who's prayerful, and I, and, and I know a number of situations right now, where it's in this, in this case, she's prayerful, she goes to church, she tries to raise them up, and the guy is out there, the chances are the kids are going to be also out there. Because the leader is the dad. It's as simple as that. Okay? And these poor women have their hearts broken over what happens to their kids. Right? Interestingly enough, St. Peter wrote a letter to women married to unbelieving men. He didn't write a letter to men married to unbelieving women. Interesting, isn't it? Only the other way around. Okay? So um, that's why you hear me mostly pull on the Because he's the, he's the head of the family. And the kids immediately take after dad. What is dad doing? Dad is the compass. Dad is the one who sets the tone. Dad has a huge role in that regard. Right? When it comes to the ability to 
maintain the cohesiveness of the family, to create bonds of relationship, to make sure love is being shared, to make sure that kids are growing with the right sense of who they are, their identity, many of that are really fashioned by the woman. Right? So her role is absolutely essential. Uh, today, we don't have any problem talking about the role of the woman. It's the guy who's way out there. And that's why you hear me so much uh, insist on this. Because our crisis, as I said, is one of manhood. Guys don't want to be guys anymore. And, uh, and, and, and being a husband and being a father. All right. Once he did that, God spoke to him in a vision. Now, why did God speak to Jacob in a vision and not to Isaac in a vision? How come God is silent with Isaac and speaking to Jacob? Any Okay, put Jacob and Joseph side by side. Who do you think is leading a holier life? Joseph, hands down. Why is God talking to Jacob and not to Joseph? That's it. He is the firstborn. Okay? Because he is the firstborn, what does that make him as far as the family goes? Leader, yeah, but what else? Responsible. Think in terms of this verse. What did he just do? He offered sacrifice. Priest. That's the key. In God's eyes, the firstborns are what? Priests. It's an order of priesthood. A priest is someone who can offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. That is why God speaks to him. That's why God spoke to Abraham. And when he spoke to Abraham, he didn't speak to Isaac. And then he spoke to Isaac. When he spoke to Isaac, he didn't speak to Jacob. And now he's speaking to Jacob, and he's not speaking to Joseph. Because it is a covenantal priestly role that is given to him as a firstborn. Do you now understand why in the new covenant God speaks to the firstborn, meaning the order of the priesthood with the Pope? In that why they are infallible when they're all together in communion? For the same reason. And why does he not speak to us in the same way? Because we are like Joseph. With, with a big difference. When we have a question of truth, when we want to understand things, what God is saying, we now have a sure compass. We can go to the church and read what the church teaches, and we know it is true. Infallibly so. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it will be always true because the Holy Spirit, God, abides in the church and guides the church until the consummation of time. Hence, the, the church, the Catholic church, with the hierarchy, can never, ever teach anything wrong as far as morality or theology is concerned. So I'm hoping by, by now that if you had any idea that the church is just the, you know, the group of all the faithful, the sort of... Uh, you know, abstract thing where all those who believe in Jesus are the church. In a sense, it's true. 
but it's an incomplete truth. It is, if somebody is trying to tell you you don't need the hierarchy, what they're basically saying is you don't need Jacob, and you don't need Isaac, and you don't need Abraham, you don't need the firstborn. That's what they're saying to you. And when they say that, they're saying you don't need the covenant. And you don't need Jesus dying on the cross. Everything unravels. The hierarchy is not something that is there because of the Roman Empire. The hierarchy is integral to the Catholic Church. Without a hierarchy, there is no way that the graces of the covenant are communicated to us. It's not going to happen. Yeah? That's why it is the Catholic Church with the hierarchy. And not sort of this sort of undefined assembly of people out there. Because if God were to say that the church is this, you know, all the people who believe in Him, then God would be really cruel. Because He would leave it up to our own device to figure out what the truth is. And you know full well that we're really not good at this. Ask anybody who's been married for 15 years plus if their marriage turned out the way they thought it would when they started. And hear them laugh. We're not good at this. But God is. Now ask them if they thought, if you're talking to people who've been married and they're happily married, if they think it is better than what they thought. And they will tell you yes. In more, more ways than one. Even if there are aspects of the marriage that have been really hard, even if there were arguments and strife and difficult times and things that forced them to change in ways that they didn't want to change. They will stand back and look and say, whoa, I don't know how we got here. That's amazing. That's how God works. So the hierarchy, absolutely important. By the way, I'll point one thing to you that is not often um, kept into consideration. If you go to Matthew, all of you are aware of the passage in Matthew where Jesus, the famous passage where Jesus asks the apostles, who do they say people I am? And they answer back and say, some say John the, 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 uh, ba- uh, the Baptist, some say Isaiah, another prophet. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Now, what does Peter say? Let me see. How many of you, can, hold on, hold on. How many of you can tell me more than you are the Messiah? Right? Okay, no, no, no. no. I'm, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me back up. So, Peter says you are what? The, the Messiah and? Yeah, yeah. If he just said you are the Messiah... That would not have been enough. That would not have been a telltale sign that God the Father spoke to him. It is, you are the Messiah. Okay, everybody was waiting for the Messiah. But then he said something absolutely remarkable. The Son of the living God. Right? It's the understanding in Peter's mind of the relationship of the Trinity that was the surest sign that he, God the Father, has chosen him by revealing something no one could have ever known that this man Jesus is actually the son of the living God. Okay, fine. What does Jesus say to Peter? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Before, before, before. Blessed, blessed. Blessed are you. It's a blessing, right? It's the blessing of the firstborn. Blessed are you what? Simon. Simon what? Barjona. Okay, what does Barjona mean? Son of? Jonah. Jonah, right? Okay, what is the name of, of Peter's dad? Huh? 
I heard it. No. It's John. Now, it's John. John. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar, Jonah. And Peter's dad's name is what? John. Now, in English, we don't pay much attention to it because Jonah and John are kind of close. But not so if you go back to the Aramaic. Jonah is Yunan, and John is Yohanon. Simon bar Yunan, Simon bar Yohanon. Now, that's very different. And every manuscript of Matthew says the same thing. Simon bar Jonah. So what's going on here? And remember, he called his, his name, his ordinary name, Simon. Not Peter yet, Simon. Simon Barjona. Huh, who is Jonah? Now, obviously, there was the, the, the prophet Jonah. You see, this is why when we don't study scripture in context, we don't understand what's going on. Go back and read this chapter. You will see right before that, Jesus comes ashore and the Jews ask for a sign. And what does Jesus tell them? An evil, no, no, an evil and wicked, you know, nice, loving Jesus. An evil and wicked generation asks for a sign, and the only sign that will be given is what? The sign of Jonah. Coincidence? What does Jesus say? For just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. So what, what sign is he giving them? The resurrection, you think. But that doesn't make any sense. He's just called them evil and wicked. Why is he giving them something good? No. What was Jonah's mission? Yeah, to convert the people of Nineveh so that what happens? And then? Okay, and then? And then come down on Israel and destroy it completely. That's what happened. And after that, God destroyed Nineveh. And we never raised after. Okay. When was Nineveh converted? When Jonah went to it. All right. What is going to happen in 70 AD? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Between 600 and 1.2 million Jews perished in that operation. Who destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans. Who was sent to Rome and died there? Coincidence? Yeah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar. Who's Jonah? No, 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 no. Who's Jonah? Jesus, for just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be. Who is Jonah? Jesus. Who is Simon's dad? What, is that, what does that make Simon then? The firstborn. Yeah, the firstborn. Yeah, of the new old church. It just continues. The promises of the Old Testament, reading now, right now, down the genealogies, are going to come to the firstborn, Joseph, and to his firstborn, 
Jesus, through the line of David, and from Jesus, there is this adoption that happens by baptism and priesthood to this man, Simon the Galilean, who becomes his firstborn. And ever since, who is the firstborn? His name is Benedict today. Do you understand why I keep harping on the Catholic Church? Because if you don't understand the Catholic Church, there is no way you can understand any stuff I'm talking to you about today. Scripture, apart from the Catholic Church, is unintelligible. You cannot understand it. And certainly you cannot live it. Simon Barjona. Yeah. There is no other way to explain this. Ask people who read Scripture... And actually, what happens is a short circuit. They stop right there. Like, huh? What? I never noticed before. Yeah. Now explain it to me. Now that you noticed. Why is he calling him Simon Barjona? Why did he change the name? And now you understand why Jesus said to Peter, go and pay the taxes for you and for me. When I ask about the taxes. Why does he tell Peter, Simon, Simon, the devil has demanded to sift you that's in St. Luke, before the Passion. And by you, he meant you all, all the apostles. But I prayed for you. So that when you come back, strengthen your brethren. Why you? And why should you strengthen Why? Because you are firstborn. The end of the Gospel of St. John. Simon, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that... Feed my sheep. Who are the sheep? Well, us. And who else? St. John and St. Jude and St. James and all the other apostles. Peter is supposed to feed them too. Three times. Why? Because he is the... Peter asked him, how many times should we forgive? Seven times seven. But I say to you... Not everybody, just you, Peter. Seven times 77, or seven times 70, right? Why? Because you are the firstborn. Do you think Peter got that? Of course he did. He got that like this. When Jesus told him, the Son of Man, once he established the new priestly order, he told them, the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem, will be killed, and he'll be raised on the third day. And what does Peter say? That's gonna, not, not going to happen. Why? Because he's assuming his role. Right? And he hasn't yet gotten it that he has to function at a supernatural level. That's not going to happen until way later. But naturally, he's thinking, oh, Jesus is going to establish a kingdom. I'm now, the, I'm now the guy in charge for everything. So I'm not supposed to defend. You understand? That was the, the, the struggle for Peter to be able to rise above the natural understanding of things and grasp the supernatural understanding. That took a real struggle for him. But the prayer, the prayer of Jesus can never fail. And then he understood his true mission. Yeah? This is why Scripture is connected. This is why we're talking about the same thing, whether in Genesis or in the Gospel of St. John. It is not just about us, it's about how God is dealing with us through all these people who put in our lives who are firstborns, who, are, who play this role. And so that's why we have to pray for our priests. They are the firstborn. They're the ones we call Father. 
we've elevated the role to be a father because they take care of us like a firstborn. Yeah? Nothing has changed. We are no different. Today, if Isaac or, or Abraham or, or Jacob were to show up right here, we'd be able to talk the same language with them. Not the Protestants, but not the Jews today. They lost this understanding of the covenant. And they would not be able to understand what we're talking about right now. Let's move on. Now, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I. Where did we hear that as well, Jacob? What did we hear God saying, mm-hmm, and somebody saying, here am I? Moses. Moses, Moses, here am I. Now, here's one question. Why does God need to say the name twice? Jacob, Jacob. Assurance and peace. I think there is something really profound here. If you watch the way a mother speaks to a child, right? there is repetition. Hmm? Why? Because we like to hear it again. Having your name called by God is a pleasure in itself. You understand? If, you un- if it's God calling your name, the fact that He calls your name, there is a pleasure right there for you. And God is generous. And that is why we repeat, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary. And we repeat it over and over again because to one who loves, repeating I love you is not boring. So if you people, you hear people saying, well, why, why do you say all these repetitive prayers? Right? Well, because you don't understand what it means to love if you're asking that question. I think I've told you the story about the I about this couple who been married for 50 years and the wife is, is on her deathbed and, and her husband is kneeling next to her and is crying and she says and he says, honey, in all these years of marriage, is there something that you would have liked me to do differently? She said, there's only one thing. He said, what is it? She said, you never told me that I that, that you loved me. And the man had this kind of pained look on his face. He said, but honey, when I married you, I told you I loved you and I said I'd say otherwise if it ever changed. Right? You know, he didn't have need to say to his wife, I, I mean, right? No, no, no need. So, husbands, put that on your to-do. Please, make sure, no matter what, even if you're upset with her, if you had an argument, even if she burned your favorite dish, whatever the case may be, make sure that you're bringing flowers to your wife regularly. Downturn or no downturn, if you can't bring a whole bouquet, bring a flower. Bring flowers. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Notice, I am God. I am God. And then the God of your father. Why does he have to tell him in in this way who he is? I am God, the God of your father. Right, to reassure him. But what is he trying to reassure him about? Right, there were other worship going on, true. Yes, absolutely. The covenant, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But what else is he telling him? But again, try to penetrate the mystery for a second. You are Jacob. And this is why if you read scripture in a meditative fashion, God reveals these things to you because you're really trying to listen. You kind of put yourself in a situation and you okay, what's going on here? And you ask these questions that I'm asking right now. That sounds on the surface maybe a little stupid. But there's so much grace that is built into this. 
that, re- that, that reveals something about God's love for us. Notice, what does, what does God say? I am God, the God of your father. Not, I am God, the God of your father when he was alive. His father right now is what? He's not simply telling him, I am God, and I am the God that your father believed in while he was alive here. No. I am God, and I am right now the God of your father. Your father right now is worshiping me. Do you know what that does to a man if he hears these words? Now, how do, how do we know what I'm saying to you right now makes sense? Is there a reference in Scripture that we can point to that supports this explanation? When the Sadducees came to Jesus and arguing with him over the resurrection, because they did not believe in the resurrection, what did Jesus say to, him, to them? Haven't you read in Scripture how God, when he appeared to Moses, says, I am the God of Isaac, of Abraham, and of Jacob, for he is the God of the living and not of the dead. So when he meant, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, he did not mean while they were alive here. He meant right now as we speak, I am their God. If And if he is their God, what does it mean about them? In the spiritual sense. This is huge. Now, do you know of anybody within our time, more or less, who had had that gift to speak about whether God is the God of somebody? Who could tell you if so-and-so is worshiping God after they're dead? Padre Pio. People went to Padre Pio and asked them whether their dead ones were in heaven. And he would immediately tell them, he's in purgatory, pray for him. What did Padre Pio do when his mother died? He stayed at her tomb for three days. And after three days, when his father came, he said, let's go, Dad. There's nothing left for us to do here. Yeah, she's in heaven. We're done. And the people would come to him and ask this question, and he would remain silent. He wouldn't answer. And they would know that the ones they're asking about is in hell. Padre Pio. He used to say, there are more people from purgatory in my church than people alive. And then one night... One day, uh, a brother saw him really tired and said, Padre Pio, what happened? He said, I stayed all night up. He said, why? He said, I told all those who are devotees of mine to send me their prayer request through their guardian angel. And you should have seen the line of guardian angel during the night. I had such a long line, uh, line, I didn't sleep at all. All the guardian angels are coming to him to bring in the request of prayers from all these people who knew him. We live in biblical times. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, we live in biblical times. The world is full of grace. This is not a time where we have surpassed religion with science. This is not a time where atheism is triumphant. This is not a time where science is going to displace religion. All that is, all these things are traps for unwary, for those who are unwary, for those who are unattentive. There is no difference between our time and the time of Jacob. It's the same thing. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Let me ask this question. Where is Egypt today? 
there is a tendency among some Catholics to decide that, you know, it's about time we pack our luggage and we go somewhere else. You know, sort of a ghetto mentality. Let's go live among Catholics somewhere where we're just all by ourselves. Now, if God wants you to go somewhere else, by all means go. But do not go out of fear. Because that's not God's intent. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. What is Egypt back then? Yeah, big civilization. It's hip. It's cool. It's the place to be if you want to do stuff. The latest fashion. It's the place where they don't fit at all. Do not be afraid. For I will there make of you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt. Why are you going down to Egypt? So that I can go down with you to Egypt. And in the process, do what to the Egyptians? Smack them on the head? So No. Convert them. Bring salvation to them. Remember in Exodus, we'll see that it wasn't only the Israelites who left Egypt. There were Egyptians who left with them. Yeah? And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God is going to do it all. Whose plan is it? It's God's plan. You understand? It is God's plan. So, looking forward, they're going to end up with what? Slaves. That's part of what? God's plan. Yeah. And we'll see why when we get there. But that's part of God's plan. Do not be afraid. There are some who somehow believe that Islam is just going to take over and destroy everything, and that's all we're going to be left. It's just Islam. There are those who are afraid of China. You cannot take counsel with your fears if you're a Christian, because they're not from God. That's essentially what God is telling Jacob. So then they go down, and then moving to the end of the chapter, Joseph told them, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of cattle for, from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Why are shepherds abomination to the Egyptians? Yes, you tend the sheep, but eventually one of them becomes barbecue. Yeah? You eat them too. Okay. And to the Egyptians, many of their gods had heads of what? Goats? Rams. So you remember in the Exodus, right? What did the Egyptians build? The golden calf. Why did they choose the golden calf? Did they sort of open up an encyclopedia of animals and randomly pick one? Because that was the god Apis of the Egyptians. And what is Apis the god of? Anybody can wager a guess? Fertility. Okay, what do we, how do we say that more in modern terms? Sex, power, and youth? Yeah? That's what he was the god of. When we say fertility... Do not assume that what they're really talking about was wheat. Most of the time, when you speak of a god or a goddess of fertility, translate pornography. It's actually the opposite of fertility in most cases. Although they were more honest about it back then than we did, because at least back then, they knew that in order to get to that sort of stuff, they had to worship a demon. 
but we somehow think we don't. That we can engage in pornography and there is no cost associated to it. I'm just doing it for, if I'm doing it all by myself and I'm not bothering anybody, right? What does it matter? Well, guess what? You're not doing it all by yourself. There's a whole horde of demons sitting right there by you enjoying the show. The show. And what I mean by that is enjoying you getting shackled and being prevented from becoming a son or a daughter of God. That's what they're enjoying. That's who Apis was, and that's who they sacrificed to. That's why they, that was a golden gaff, right? That's why they are an abomination, because when you kill an animal that represents a god, what are you saying? What statement are you making? You're killing that god. Let me give you an example that you might be able to relate to a little bit better. You know that in our faith, the lamb is, is a symbol of what? Of Jesus. If somebody were to take a lamb, let's say, and, I don't know, do something really awful with it, and pin it on the door of a church, what do you think this person would be saying? You'd immediately understand that it wasn't just about that poor animal that got tortured this way. You completely understand right away that this person is making a statement about the faith, don't you? It would be the same for the Egyptians. And that's why they had to live in Goshen, which is a separate area, so that the Egyptians may not see them. Talk about, talk about a recipe for disaster. I mean, here are people who, in a very physical manner, do not believe what the Egyptians believe. And they're going to see it because they are shepherds. You can't hide that stuff. But Joseph is adamant. This is what you're going to say, and this is what you will tell Pharaoh, and this is where you're going to live. There is no hiding. There is no pretending. There is no backing away from who they are. They are shepherds. So we have no excuse today to say, oh, I can't show myself as a Catholic out there. I can't do the sign of the cross in a restaurant. I might bother somebody. Yeah, when you don't do the sign of the cross as a Catholic in a restaurant over the food that you're being served, when you don't invoke God's blessing over that food, right, what you're not seeing, there's a bunch of demons sitting there with glee on their face. You're betraying who you are, and they're very happy about it. Do you understand? So yeah, you're going to bother somebody Except you're going to have to pick who you're going to bother. Because Jesus said, whomever is going to be ashamed, I will be ashamed of him in front of my father. Okay? They were keepers of sheep, and, and they killed those animals, and that was a complete abomination to the Egyptians, but they would not stop doing the same. Joseph didn't come to them, look, you're going to be among the Egyptians. You're going to start to talk like them. Please shave your heads and look like them. You need to fit in. And you know all this business of hurting? How about you start dealing with pineapples? There was no change of identity. Yeah, you live in Egypt. Who is winning the battle? Do you allow co-workers to use filthy language in your presence? Do you allow them to swear without saying anything? Do you allow them to speak against the faith in front of you? Do you hide the fact that you're a Catholic? Who are you? You will be rendering account of all of this before the Lord. I'm not saying, you know, walk in your office dressed in white, holding the Bible, and telling them, change or you're going to hell. I'm not saying go and then start preaching to them. It's not the right spot. It's not the right place. But you preach by your actions. 
and by who you are and what you believe in. You can demand respect for your faith. You can demand respect for your God. You can demand that they speak properly in front of you. And they do not use foul language. These things you can demand out of dignity. That's not imposition on anyone. If you do the sign of the cross before you eat, you're showing that you believe in something. People tend to respect that, especially when they know you're not imposing it on them and you're not threatened by their unbelief or their belief in something else. People appreciate that. So you can see now, they're going down to Egypt and they're going to settle there. And the key for us, again, is how, when we compare our lives to their lives, compare our lives to that of Jacob and Joseph, how does it stack up? With the graces that we see from the sacraments, with the graces we see from the church, how does our life stack up? So now we're going to take a, uh, a break. We're going to finish with a word of prayer, and then we will take questions right after. Thank you. Yes. Well, okay, that's a really good question. When I said 7 times 70, not 7 times 7. 7 times 7 is for all of us, right? So we're all supposed to forgive a lot, all the time. But there is a special charism of forgiveness given to Peter on account of his role. Remember what Jesus said to them, whomever, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, right? So therefore, there is a power of forgiveness given to Peter that is much greater than what we have, in particular when it comes to what? How does this power of forgiveness, if you will, from the papacy flows to us? Indulgences. The decree of indulgences come from the papacy, and it is a way in which we receive not just forgiveness, but also um, we don't have right, to uh, worry anymore. It's the removal of the temporary, of the punishment due to sin. Right? And that comes through the, 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 um, the, um, the, the Sea of Peter. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That's why he has to forgive a lot more because he has so much more that he can give out. Yeah? The demand of forgiveness is complete on us. As far as our scope is concerned, we have to always forgive. There, is, there can never be a moment where we are not supposed to forgive. Endlessly, absolutely. But in his case, it's, I can forgive people who have come and did something to me. In the case of Peter, he offers graces that go beyond his person. When he opens up the treasury of the church to all of us, when John Paul said during the, the Jubilee year, if you go on pilgrimage anywhere to a cathedral basilica and pray the prayer of the, of the Jubilee, you will receive a plenary indulgence. That's the power of Peter. He didn't have to do it, but he decided to do it. Yes. Joseph's wife was Egyptian. Yes. It doesn't matter. She's married to Joseph. It's a very good point. It's actually a very good point. Remember, she's the daughter of On. Isn't that interesting? On is a very powerful deity in Egypt. And she's the daughter of that of On, of the priest of On, right? Who was a main, major deity in Egypt at the time. And she's a daughter of him, and yet she's now counted amongst the family of Jacob through her marriage with, with Joseph. I mean, talk about graces if you think about the fact that here you have two people who were married, Joseph and this daughter of the priest of On, and he did not worship there. Where he had no place to worship, he did not worship there. He was not swayed by the God of his father-in-law. Talk about graces. 
Yes. Oh, good question. No, the Egyptians were not vegetarians. They, they ate meat, but it was not that kind of meat. So in Exodus, we are going to see this. People get confused over this whole list of restrictions. right? The animals with hoofs are okay, but those who are with cleaved hoofs are unclean. And the whole list goes on as bewildering to us. What is God up to? What is really, really simple? God took his people out of Egypt, but he didn't take Egypt out of his people. So they're addicted to the whole orgies and sacrifices of the gods, like everybody else. So now, they're addicted to what? To sacrifice. They have to sacrifice. They're addicted to it. All right? So he says, fine. Okay, you're addicted. Guess what? I'll let you sacrifice. But we'll make a couple of changes. First, you sacrifice to me. Second, those animals you used to sacrifice to, these are the ones you sacrificed to me. And the animals you used to sacrifice to these animals, those are the ones you will not touch. They're unclean. What is he trying to do? Wean them off the Egyptian sacrificial system. We'll go through in detail and show you all of this. That's what the deal was. So, for instance, pigs and all these other animals that the Egyptians would sacrifice and eat no longer. And that's why they were considered to be unclean. All right? Yes. Yes, indeed. The, the question is, when, when Peter answered, there is an indication of this whole predestination that St. Paul talks about. And absolutely. So again, in the Catholic Church, we teach that there is such thing as a predestination. Right? We don't shy away from the teaching, but neither do we say there is no free will. So we balance the two. We don't really know how to hold them together really well. Right? So absolutely, yes. There are people who God completely fills with grace to the point where they cannot say no to him. One of whom is named Therese. Okay? These people absolutely say, God can't do that. And I keep on repeating to you, God is not a socialist. He doesn't take his pie of love and split it into exact portion, give each one exactly. We're so obsessed with this today. It's unbelievable. Right? I always love this quotation from the Incredibles, where uh, the mother is telling Dash, the kid, that he cannot run. He's a super, I mean, he has superpowers. He can run really fast. He's not supposed to do that. And she says, we cannot show that we're special. Well, why? And she says, because everybody's special. And he answers, which means nobody is. And that's really the, the society where is, is obsessed with any notion that somebody can be better than somebody. right? So we have to make sure everybody's equal. No, that's not true. God doesn't function this way. You know, Mary, another good example. St. Joseph. right? So yeah. But remember that the, God of love, the love of God is so incredibly deep that he is giving us way more than we can ever imagine. So it's not like he gave one 30 cents to live on for the rest of his life and gave somebody billions. No, he gave everybody Googles and he gave some more than others. But everybody has way more than they can ever need. Right? So another teaching, everyone receives all the graces necessary for salvation. Yeah? Which is really what matters to us at the end of the day. Because that's what we have to correspond to. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.